everybody, PJ Frightful here again. Tonight we're picking up where last episode left off, with Ryan Daly and Paul Hicks reviewing the next two issues of Night Force. And I get to say something I've always wanted to say. Previously on Night Force. Yes, I've always wanted to say that, shut up. The Pentagon hired Professor Donovan Kane of Georgetown University to run experiments on summoning and containing the essence of pure evil. The key to his success may be a troubled young woman named Vanessa Van Helsing, with psychic powers she can neither control nor understand. Two government agents assigned to monitor Professor Kane's experiments are murdered by powerful enemy forces. Imposters with unknown but sinister motives take the place of the agents and spy on Donovan and Vanessa. Meanwhile, the mysterious and possibly magical Baron Winters puts disgraced reporter Jack Gold on the scent of Donovan Kane's project. Jack witnesses one of the experiments where Vanessa is used as a vehicle to summon demonic forces. He ends the seance, taking Vanessa back to a hotel and has sex with her. Because, you know, that's what you do with traumatized people in delicate mental states. Baron Winters tells Donovan and his wife Marianne where to find Jack and Vanessa. They go to the hotel, and Donovan punches Jack in the face. He and Marianne take Vanessa back to Georgetown to renew their experiments. In the midst of the latest summoning ritual, the imposters barge in and kidnap Vanessa. The event triggers her psychic tether to the demonic forces Donovan was trying to control. A demon entity slaughters the students taking part in the ritual and murders Marianne right in front of Donovan. While all of this is going on, Detective Short investigates the murders of the federal agents and some other unexplained deaths connected to Donovan's project. Now, let us join Ryan and Paul as they continue to cover this supernatural saga. Night Force, Issue 3, cover dated October 1982, released on July 15th that year, has a cover by Gene Colan and series inker Bob Smith. The cover shows Jack and Donovan in the ocean, or at least a large body of water, as a man with a gun shoots at them from the deck of a hovercraft. Uh, what do you think about this cover? I kept seeing this cover on uh, Mike's Amazing World of Comics before I, I bought it. Um, and I was always like, what is that? It looked like some sort of skull face because there's this <laughs> giant moon behind the hovercraft and uh, the props of the hovercraft are like eyes on the moon. Yes. And it, it looks like a giant, I don't know, dome robot coming towards them. Yeah, no, I, I noticed but, that too. Like the moon is full and it's huge. And it's positioned in such a way that it's right behind the hovercraft, but also the top of the moon is obscured by the Night Force title logo. So you're like, I had to look at this a couple times and say, is that part of the boat? Like, yeah. Because you're right, like they're like two parts, like the, the props are, or they even look like like searchlights or something. And the way the whole thing is lit up, I'm like, what is that thing? And it's, it's yeah, it's, it's like they're being attacked by Brainiac's spaceship <laughs> or something. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It looks like that. You're right. But yeah, it took me way too long to figure out that, oh, that's the moon. That shouldn't have been hard to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Chapter three of the summoning is called Journeys. Once more, Wolfman wrote and edited the story. Colin and Smith provided the art. Michelle Wolfman is back on the colors this time. 
Baron Winters gets off the phone and monologues for the audience by way of talking to his pet cheetah, Merlin, he reminds the cat and the reader that of all of his abilities, foresight is not one of them, and he had no idea Marion Kane would be tragically killed in this current conflict. He is confident, though, that despite the setbacks, Jack Gold and Donovan Kane will come through when he needs them. But the Baron needs someone else, too, another player. So he consults the latest volume of Who's Who in Night Force. He flips through... <laughs> He flips through profiles until he finds just the frumpy old man he needs. Then he walks back to his chair with Merlin, insisting that his plan still has a 67% chance of succeeding, despite his mistakes. At Kennedy Airport, the two men posing as federal agents Carrie James and Trevor Simmons whisk a heavily sedated Vanessa Van Helsing through customs and security. The men use CIA badges to rush through and put Vanessa on an international flight. At the Pentagon, Jack Gold barges into the office of Major Carson, last seen in the preview story from New Teen Titans 21. Jack tells him what he knows of the government's project, Satan, and that agents James and Simmons kidnapped an innocent girl. Carson tells Jack that it couldn't have been James and Simmons since they were murdered days ago. Outside Carson's office, his secretary calls the mysterious man in the shadows and tells him what she's overheard. At a cemetery, Marion Kane's casket is lowered into the ground. Donovan grieves with his son, Lawrence, who wants to know why his mother had to die if she wasn't old or sick. Donovan brings his son home and wonders aloud if maybe he didn't kill his wife with his experiment. Jack Gold is waiting for Donovan at his house. Given that Donovan already punched Jack once before, I'm not sure surprising him on the day of his wife's funeral was a good idea, but oh well. Jack tells him he can prove Marion's death wasn't Donovan's fault, but rather the fault of the two phony agents who pretended to be his security. Donovan doesn't want to hear this and punches Jack again. Hey, I called it. Jack leaves, t- Jack leaves telling Donovan to call Baron Winters, who will back up his story. Jack goes back to his motel to call his editor and let him know that he's off this story. But his editor, Hank, fires him before he can quit. Hank says Baron Winter said Jack threatened him and the Pentagon is close to pressing charges. Jack can't believe what he's hearing and storms off to get answers from the Baron, not seeing a mist-like demon face in the shadows of his room. At police headquarters, Detective Short meets with the medical examiner to go over evidence he collected at the street where the demons attacked the previous night. The ME identifies the tissue left behind as seared human flesh with gastric juices, meaning it had been eaten. Detective Short has a very bad feeling about this case. Then another officer brings him a photo of Vanessa Van Helsing and tells the detective that she was with Donovan Kane when she was kidnapped. The detective remembers Kane's name from a previous case. He goes to ask Donovan some details about his wife's death and Vanessa's kidnapping. Meanwhile, a TSA agent at Kennedy Airport identifies Vanessa by a photo and tells the cops that she got on a plane bound for London with two men. Jack goes to Wintergate Manor. When the Baron opens the door, Jack grabs him and threatens to beat him over getting him fired. Baron Winters doesn't deny what he did, claiming that he needed Jack's commitment to chasing Vanessa's kidnappers to the Soviet Union. Baron Winters goes on to explain who Vanessa Van Helsing is and why she shares the name of the famous fictional vampire hunter. According to the Baron, Abraham Van Helsing was a real man, a friend of Dracula writer Bram Stoker, but unlike the character of Mina, who shared a psychic rapport with the vampire in Stoker's novel, it was actually Van Helsing who had psychic abilities. He passed these abilities onto his child, who passed it on to the next generation and the next, until Vanessa. 
Winters further explains that the Russians have long been studying telepathy and psychic phenomena, that they have actually mastered some of these abilities in an attempt to raise Satan. No, not the horned image of the devil, but the real physical manifestation of the energy source that we perceive as evil. Donovan Kane's experiments helped channel that evil energy through Vanessa, and it was given the physical shape of a demon because that is how Kane's students imagined evil to look. Baron Winters tells Jack that Vanessa's only hope is for Jack and Donovan to follow her kidnappers to London and rescue her before they take her to Russia. Jack is already skeptical, but he doesn't think for a minute that Donovan would actually go. He's wrong, though. Donovan agrees to go on the mission to hunt down the men responsible for his wife's death. Jack and Donovan fly to London together, but it's clear these two are not friends. They stop by a hotel and then a bookstore the Baron recommended to them. All the while, they're being followed by the imposter agents who kidnapped Vanessa. They go to the bookstore, and an elderly woman gives them a book the Baron supposedly left with her back in 1928, when she was just a girl with a crush on the older Baron. Jack and Donovan leave the store and walk along the edge of the Thames. Jack is trying to figure out how the Baron could have dated that woman 60 years ago when a gunshot rings out that nearly hits Donovan. The guys duck for cover, and a car speeds up, nearly running them down. Jack recognizes the fake Carrie and Trevor. One of them shoots again, this time hitting Donovan in the leg. Donovan falls over the edge into the river. Jack jumps over the side to join him. For a moment, they feel safe in the water. That moment ends when the fake agents appear on the deck of a hydrofoil, speeding down on Jack and Donovan. The imposters open fire as Jack and Donovan try to swim away. And the story ends on that cliffhanger to be continued in Night Force issue 4. Alright, what'd you think? Okay, there's so much in this one. Now, it's making a phone call, uh, well, including us I was talking to, and... I got really confused about this because I thought, okay, that's probably where he talked to uh, Jack's editor. But within a couple of pages, he's looking at a picture of Jack's editor in his uh, Night Force Who's Who book that he's uh, pulled off the shelf. I thought that at first, I'm not sure that guy he looks at is the the same as the editor. I think it's, yeah. I think it's a lawyer that we end up meeting a few issues later. Oh, is it? Okay. I think so. Yeah. Think anyway, that's very confusing. Yeah. No, yeah, the beginning of this was a little bit confusing. <laughs> I think it was the editor that he got off the phone that he got off the phone with that we find that out later on. But I'm pretty sure the picture that he sees that he's the new guy that he's looking for, we meet that guy in issue 5 or 6, I think. But his chats with uh, the cheetah become they get really weird in this bit because he's like he says, "Don't be snide, Merlin," as though Merlin's you know talking to him and he, no one else can hear it. It sort of reminds me of the parents in Peanuts. <laughs> Yeah. Merlin obviously suggests names to him because he goes, Rickard? No, I forgot he died on the last assignment. <laughs> right, right. So, Which is kind of just, tells you a little bit about the Baron that, oh, yeah, you've got all these people who work for – oh, you forgot that that one died working for you? Okay, I'm not sure how much human life really matters to you. Yeah, I mean, agents are like buses for him. There'll be another one along in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, so then we, this is where the, the story starts jet-setting around world, like a good uh, spy mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he sends we, – we see the agents have left and they've gone to London with um, Vanessa in a wheelchair. And then Jack goes to the Pentagon to uh, – because he was in the office of this bloke in the first uh, – in the preview story. And that's where he found out about Project Satan – which is Donovan Kane's mm-hmm. project, you know, and there he's, you know, saying, oh, there's some dodgy agents, and that's where he finds out the agents are actually dead, so they're probably spies from somewhere. I just love that everyone has a secretary who works for this bad guy. <laughs> yes, they all do. 
guy this guy really knew what he was doing when he put all these his agents in these positions of like administrative assistance around the around this network of support staff yeah. all doing his bidding. Yeah, all these traitors <laughs> that come out. Yeah. Um, it's probably the same temp agency or something. <laughs> We get in this issue, and we've seen a little bit, but uh, from time to time, Wolfman drops these sort of almost like paragraphs of text. They're not like quite like captions, but we see them like around the funeral for Marianne, and later on when uh, Detective Short goes to see Donovan Kane. It's just like these nice little flourishes of prose that Wolfman throws in, and it it really does sort of remind me that he was approaching the series more like a novel. Than, mm. a, a, than a traditional, you know, superhero comic. It's not a superhero genre, but it definitely, the structure, everything, the long form that he's going for, and some of these little passages that he throws in, yeah, it feels more like he's writing a novel than, uh, than what you'd expect from this time period. Yeah, and the, the story sort of leans towards, like, if there's a dramatic way of doing something versus a logical way of doing it, Marv's going for the dramatic mostly. So, you know, Jack wants to talk to Donovan, so he basically breaks into his house and waits in the dark <laughs> to talk to him. Yeah, and again, that's not something that I would have, you know, it's like you don't have a good relationship with this guy already. <laughs> and by the way, his wife died and he just buried her. Don't break into his apartment and, and sit and wait for him. <laughs> no, not cool. Not cool. <laughs> um, but, you know, he puts Donovan on the fact that these agents are to blame. And mm-hmm. Donovan really latches onto that. Like, not that you ran this um, out-of-control experiment and that was the reason she died, but these agents, the one who shot the gun, that was the that was where things went haywire. <laughs> Which, I mean, I get that. I mean, I think everybody's sort of natural inclination would always be to blame someone else rather than admit their own culpability. Oh, I always admit my own culpability. I'm, <laughs> I'm a self-lover. <laughs> well, you are you are better than most people, Paul. <laughs> oh, thank you. Or, this podcast or... is bad because of me. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, again, Vanessa is hardly in this. I mean, we, we talked about her lack of agency in the last one. She's barely in this one. Um, yes, but she's unconscious in a chair, getting wheeled around. Yeah, right, right. She, yeah, she literally has no control over what's going on, and we only really see her in one one scene. Um, we we do seem to be picking up a new character, which is this detective short, who's kind of putting this mystery together. And I guess we will see that he he becomes a sort of antagonist to the Baron because he's going to eventually start posing a threat to the mystery. But I, I don't know if we're supposed to take him seriously at this point. Because, mm. like, at, at this point when I was reading it, I was like, well, this guy, he can't possibly have any sort of a f- influence on the outcome of the story. He might just serve as a nuisance. And we might see that true or or not later on. But uh, that was my that was my first thought about him when we saw him. Yeah. Now, on page 10, which is the page where Jack gets fired over the phone, mm-hmm. the Baron has rung his editor and complained about him. And this, you know, concludes with Jack getting fired. And the Baron is doing this so he can have Jack as an independent agent, not working for the paper anymore, so free to travel the world suddenly. But there's a panel there where Jack is smoking and the, the cigarette smoke is forming a demonic face. Can you see that? Yeah, yeah, no, I noticed that, yeah. So that begs the question, is that something that is there that Jack is not seeing, or is that something that we can see as readers that Jack can't see? 
I don't know, because on page 11, when he's leaving the room too, you also see that demonic face sort of in the corner, like it's coming out of the shadows. Yeah. And I wasn't sure if that was some, if it was some sort of kind of residual energy that's following him, if it had something to do with the fact that uh, Vanessa had been in that room. I have no idea. Yeah. Spoilers, we never find out. <laughs> yes. I, I wonder if he had an idea for something like that. And um, we also, there, there's something else when the woman at the Pentagon calls her, you know, shady, mysterious master. He says, yep. you know, we'll deal, with, we'll deal with Jack, you deal with Major Carson. I don't mm. think that ever comes up again. No. I don't think we have any idea, like, how she deals with it. Like, the next we hear is that Jack's editor kind of implies that the Pentagon might press charges against him. But, yeah, I don't, I don't know if we ever hear specifically about the Major again. It's just, uh, well, I mean, you can fill in the blanks there. <laughs> yeah. I like the scene when Jack goes to confront the Baron and gets, like, physical with him, like, grabs him by his cape and everything. And Merlin starts to growl, and he says, call off your overgrown Garfield Winters. He's like, I'm afraid Merlin has a mind of his own, Mr. Gold. And he's like, oh, then maybe he'll understand this. And he kind of does this threatening gesture. And he's like, scat, cat, before I break your master's back. Which reminds me of the lyrics to Whip It for some reason. <laughs> Um, there was something that I didn't mention when we talked about the covers, but uh, I, I wanted to bring it up now because it's twice in a row. The covers to issue two and three both reveal what happens at the very end of the issue. Yeah. Like, like the cover to issue three, like the, these guys in the, in the water with the boat with, coming down on them and them being shot at, that is the very last panel of this issue. Maybe this should have been the cover to issue four. <laughs> and the other one, the cover to issue two, has them like with the, the seance and Marianne being pulled up. I mean, I guess that doesn't really spoil what happens to her. So you would, But again, that, like, that happens at the very end of issue two. So yes. I just wonder if, like, yeah, I, I, I guess they, the cover to issue two doesn't bother me as much. But this one I kind of looked at, I was like, okay, I guess at some point they end up in the water and they're being shot at. Like, and about, oh, that's the very, very end. That's like the last panel of this issue. Yeah. Uh, so. And... <laughs> the descriptor of that says it's a hydrofoil. That's not a hydrofoil. That's a hovercraft. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hydrofoils have like the inverted spoilers that lift the, right. the boat out of the water. Right. So <laughs> anyway, moving <laughs> it's on. Educational for everyone, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but London. They're in London, so naturally they have to walk along the Thames. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like the landmarks. Like every in Sydney, you have to go to the Opera House to have your fight. <laughs> yes, yes, you do. All right, shall we move on? Yeah. All right, Night Force, issue four, cover date, November 1982, on sale date, August 19th, 1982. The cover is by Gene Colan and Dick Giordano again. It shows Vanessa Van Helsing on the floor in a barred room. Lurking over her is a man whose face we cannot see, but what we can see is a giant snake that appears to be coming out of him or away from him and hissing nastily at Vanessa. What do you think of this cover? It's very pink. <laughs> that was one of my thoughts, yes. It's it's very bold. I mean, the, the graphical design of it is very bold. Um, yeah, Vanessa looks like she's wearing a nice dress this time instead of a <laughs> crappy robe. Um, I, I, I don't love this cover. Like, apart from the cage and the shadowy figure and the snake and Vanessa, that's all there is to it, really. I really do like this cover, except for the coloring. 
And again, yeah. like the weird, like, especially in particular on the, the title and the logos and everything, it's like this neon, almost day glow pink, like you think this would glow in the dark or something. <laughs> it's this really weird effect. It's and the I, pink version of Underworld Unleashed. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so I'm not crazy about that, but the image itself with her on the ground and this guy in shadows with some sort of snake thing coming off of him. And what I like about this is this cover reminds me of something that we would have seen on the cover of House of Mystery or House of Secrets or The Unexpected, one of those classic horror anthologies. This seems like a cover to that. So maybe just that type of reminder makes me like this cover a lot more. But uh, yeah, I think I would probably prefer a black and white sketch or black and white inked version of this cover to the one that we actually get in color. Yeah, you're bringing me around. It is it is very good, actually. And I think because the connection between the snake and the man's face is obscured, you sort of imagine something fairly horrific there. Right. right. But the pink, the pink is the problem. My wife just said they had just, they just had too much pink left over in their palate. They had to use it on something. <laughs> People order too much pink. You've got to use it up. <laughs> they do. The Summoning Chapter Four is called Eyes. Same creative team on the art and script, but Todd Klein lettered the issue, and Adrian Roy is back on colors. Jack and Donovan are still treading water in the River Thames as the hydrofoil, or hovercraft rather, speeds toward them. On the boat, the imposters who pretended to be agents Carrie and Trevor shoot at the would-be heroes. Donovan has already been shot in the leg and is starting to lose consciousness. Jack grabs him and swims to the bottom of the river. He clings to an old tire to keep them below the surface and uses a rock to open Donovan's leg wounds so the blood will rise and fool their attackers. Despite the fact that it's clearly nighttime and there is a full moon out, the foe, Carrie, and Trevor manage to see the blood in the water and assume that they did their job. The hovercraft races off, and a few seconds later, Jack and Donovan breach, taking in huge gulps of air. Later that same night, presumably because of the five-hour difference between London and Washington, D.C., Detective Elliot Short visits the Potomac Psychiatric Hospital to ask Dr. Rabin about Vanessa. When he mentions the girl was kidnapped, Dr. Rabin accuses Baron Winters. Detective Short also asks her about Vanessa's psychotic episodes, and Rabin gives him the times of each fit. Later, back at the station, Short confirms that Vanessa's seizures correlate perfectly with the strange apparitions and attacks, with the worst, most violent occurring at exactly during her kidnapping. Somewhere in England, Vanessa is alone in the dark. She's been beaten and starved by the men who kidnapped her, but they made one mistake in telling her that they needed her. That careless admission is enough for her because it reaffirms her belief that she is not crazy, she has not lost her mind, and that gives her hope. The foe, Carrie and Trevor, who are clearly KGB operatives, have brought Vanessa to the Russian embassy in England, which looks like a castle in the countryside. The ambassador is away at present, but some diplomat in a position of authority chastises them for bringing the girl there and risking exposure. The agents say they couldn't bring Vanessa to Moscow until they had confirmed her power levels, so they need one more test. They have brought in a specialist from Germany, Herr Zachary Zadok, who is just about the creepiest-looking person you've ever seen. Even the man <laughs> in charge of the embassy seems to tremble in Zadok's presence. 
Vanessa is still in the dark when suddenly a door opens. She can barely see the man who enters, and he refuses to answer her pleas for help. Then the man's eyes begin to glow, and the room is flooded with red light. We can see the man as Zadok, and suddenly vicious snakes slither out from his mouth and eye sockets. Vanessa screams in horror. The snakes wrap around her, entwining her. Their fangs bite into her flesh and slash her clothing and skin. Vanessa is assaulted by all of her senses. From outside, however, we see that Zadok has just approached Vanessa's cell with the others. He goes inside and lifts up her semi-conscious form, telling the others that she knew he was coming. In London, Donovan Kane's gunshot wound is treated and he is released from the hospital. He still wants to go after the guys who killed his wife. Donovan and Jack consult the book they picked up last issue, a book supposedly printed in the 1920s, despite having a picture of Vanessa on its frontispiece and a profile of a Russian psychic from the 1960s. Back at the hotel, Donovan reads the book and learns about Russia's advanced study into parapsychic phenomena. Jack gets Donovan to open up and talk about how he met his wife. Then Jack shares the details about how he and his wife, Annie, eventually split up. During this bonding activity, Jack stares out the window and sees the flag of the Russian embassy. He feels like an idiot for not guessing that the enemy would take Vanessa, not to the main mission in London, but to their private estate out of town. Back in Georgetown, Detective Short goes to interrogate Baron Winters about Vanessa's kidnapping. He thinks she's being taken to the Soviet Union and notes that Baron Winters is from there, isn't he? The Baron says he left before the revolution, which would not seem possible based on how old the Baron appears to look. Detective Short gets frustrated by the lack of answers coming from Baron Winters and opens the door to the grotto. But when he looks out, he doesn't see the Baron's garden, but rather a scene from colonial America. Winters slams the door shut and asks the detective to stay inside. Not believing his own senses, Detective Shore opens the door again, only to see the garden exactly as it should have been. At the embassy, Herr Zadok has Vanessa drugged and strapped to a chair with electrodes. The others watch him flip a switch and electricity jolts through Vanessa. She wakes up staring into Zadok's eyes, eyes that send her into the far reaches of a dream. Out of darkness comes the moon, and a face begins to form on the moon. At first the face is hideous, like Zadok's. Then she sees the eyes change, becoming more reptilian, and finally the face on the moon is that of a snake. On the road, Jack and Donovan drive toward the Russian embassy. Donovan explains the nature of Vanessa's power again for Jack and the reader. Donovan's students used their ritual to project their vision of evil into Vanessa's mind. Her power was to give that vision a physical, tangible form through her psychic power. If the Russians can harness her power, she could potentially destroy the world. The thought is terrifying to Jack, who just might regret sleeping with her at this point. In the embassy, Zadok and the Russians watch raw psychic energy flow like fire off of Vanessa. The boss man tries to get Zadok to end the experiment by tranquilizing the girl, but Zadok is completely awestruck by her power levels. That fascination is his undoing. The psychic energy lashes out as a wave of fire that engulfs the room and incinerates Herr Zadok. The agents sedate Vanessa and carry her out to the car as the embassy building burns to the ground. The diplomat, Gargarin, has no idea how he will explain this, but the others don't stick around to find out. After the sun has risen, Donovan and Jack pull up to the charred remains of the embassy. Donovan pieces together what happened and knows that if Vanessa is still alive, they've taken her to the Soviet Union. And that is where he and Jack must go next. To be continued in Night Force issue 5. Alright, what did you think of this one? <laughs> the whole scene underwater with the blood coming up at night. <laughs> that is dodgy as hell, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and I don't think the colorist 
I, I like Adrian Roy, but I don't think she did justice to the scene that this really should have been much darker. And yeah, how do you spot blood in the water, in the river water of all things, in the dead of night? And you know what tells you that you've killed someone in the river? A body. <laughs> yes. Oh, just blood. Yeah. <laughs> but I love that um, Donovan's been shot in the leg and underwater, sort of Jack hooks his leg on a tire to hold them under. Then he gets a rock and starts stabbing at Donovan's leg to make it bleed more. I know. What's, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, <laughs> it's oh, okay. But didn't you see the words at the bottom of page two? Uh, and he wishes he could cry, but tears will not come. <laughs> It's Marv having a go at Len Wein there. Yeah, I, that sounds that's very similar to the end of the Swamp Thing. I don't know. Yeah, I got to that part. I was like, he is. He has been shot. He is already bleeding. Why are you opening the wound even more at the bottom of the river? <laughs> Just like, and he wishes he could cry, but tears will not come underwater. I'm, I'm so sorry. I have to use a rock to open up your gushing bullet wound. Believe yeah, me, and- you'll you'll thank me for this later when we're alive. And slight spoilers ahead for this. This is it becomes a running pattern with Donovan. Yes, that he just gets more and more injuries as the story goes on. Oh yeah, and oh. It, it's like um, Ken from a fish called Wanda. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, oh dear. Anyway, that's weird. Yeah. Um, my favorite, like we get tons of crazy stuff. We get tons of visuals with like the snakes and the fiery eyes and people burning again. We get tons of that throughout this story. Um, but my favorite panel in this entire issue is page 19. The last panel, the look on Jack's face when Donovan is explaining at any point she could psychically explode. And I swear that when that, when she does, hell will seem like paradise by comparison. And and Jack says, "Great God in heaven, you know." It, it seems like he's thinking about like the levels of her power, but really he's just thinking, "Oh my God, who did I sleep with?" It's like, it's <laughs> That's like, my I, girlfriend. Yeah, he's like, "I had sex with the wrong crazy this time." <laughs> <laughs> this whole explanation of um, you know, if I take this correctly, all the people at the university when they all gather around and do this, you know, um, satanic ritual, they're all imagining satanic stuff and she sort of channels the imagination and brings it to physical manifestation is that that was how i understood it and that was the most clear that i understood it but but i was like i really wish that could have been said an issue or two ago (laughs) yeah but it's like you know this power that we call satan is actually evil not satan (laughs) and we you know collect the evil and bring it to you know it's a bit like saying, I punch you in the nuts, and you're not punched in the nuts. It's pain that you are feeling. <laughs> it makes no sense. Really. It's like, I don't want to get into a syntactic argument with you, but you still punched me in the nuts. <laughs> yeah, it's not Satan. It's evil. It's okay. Um, it's actually very similar to something we came across in the Doom Patrol, which was like a um, there's a, a villain there who's like the manifestation of everybody's anxiety about World War Three. Mm-hmm. So you know everyone is feeling so tense about something that you know it creates like a Trump monster or something. <laughs> but I mean, I don't like the fact that the Russians are enemies in this. Russians are our friends. <laughs> of course they are. Yeah, they definitely were in 1982, and yeah, yeah. At this point, we knew that we were kind of getting into like an international adventure when they went to London. But now, yeah, it's quite clear the bad guy in the story is are these agents of KGB or something like that. And all of a sudden, it's like, okay, this isn't just a kind of like classical Stephen King, you know, crazy parapsychology demon story. 
this is what Marvel Wolfman explained was a supernatural mission impossible. There are these international global espionage themes to the story, and we're finally seeing that really pick up and become overt. Yeah, and it sort of mirrors the the space race, the fact that Russia, mm-hmm. you know, got a man into space first. You know, Marvel Wolfman basically says, you know, they're ahead of us in their, you know, psychic investigations, and you know, we need to catch up. So it's like, you know, the occult space race. So. Right, right, right. Page 13, I, I actually noticed the art before I was reading the text. I was like, what the hell is going on with the room in Baron Winter, like, in this panel? Yeah. Was Gene Colan, was he, like, falling asleep when he was drawing this? And then he's like, oh, no, he is actually drawing, like, there is a sort of weird spatial shift in reality as the Baron is getting more and more upset and wants the detective to leave. And then the detective opens the door and reality has changed slightly because that's not the door to the garden. Do you think it's a, like a trick door and if you open it downwards it leads to this you know historical <laughs> setting and if you open it upwards it's normal? Ah, it's like that. That's a good question. It's this is basically the same scene that we had with Jack when he opened the door onto Paris. Um, yes. Or in the earlier issue. It's it's kind of like the same thing. They're talking to the Baron, they get frustrated, they go outside and kind of the same the same thing happens again. We don't always see an old woman carrying baguettes. <laughs> Yeah, but Zadok, he looks like an understudy from, uh, you know, the the villains from Raiders of the Lost Ark or something, doesn't he? Oh, yes, he does. I love the look of this guy. And like, and even like the colorist like emphasizes like he he almost looks like he's got like weird like acne scars or like miniature burns or something like this. But yeah, like his lips look melted, his his nose is misshapen. This is such a weird, ugly looking guy. And then I love the fact that he has this like psychic power and he like seems to project snakes coming out of his eyes and mouth. It's so creepy. I wish this guy survived more than one issue. <laughs> like that was but, the heartbreaking thing. It was like, oh, I missed Marianne when she died. I really missed this guy when he died i was like this guy's awesome <laughs> but i mean he never actually does that this is just vanessa yeah, picking yeah. up what a creepy is yeah you know the snakes are just a manifestation of him being you know a nasty piece of work yeah no yeah you're right yeah yeah <laughs> there's some sort of thematic thing going on with the moon in this comic that i'm not quite grasping like there's full moons everywhere <laughs> yes and always um, yeah and they're really close to things like at the end when uh, vanessa's you know energy is sort of destroying the soviet embassy it's it looks like solaris is attacking it's <laughs> there's also there's a um a commonality like that uh he he brings up the always the smell of sulfur and cordite whenever her psychic power is used yeah uh, that seems to be a current and he we give, he gives a lot of sort of physical or sensory details about her psychic uh, assault this time but again like the same thing that was mentioned in donovan's lab and it's also brought back here when she's in in the embassy the smell of sulfur and cordite very interesting it's kind of weird on the last page that the sort of the art pulls back and has a lot more border space around it suddenly on the last page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like uh, very epilogic or something, you know, saying this is all over and we will move on to the next phase of the story at this point, right. which is let's go to Russia. <laughs> Things are going to change. Can I just talk about the letters page for a minute? Sure, yeah, yeah. It, has, it says Night Forces and it's got a very sort of um, – carnival type font and then it has all the characters in stars like it's a game show it's really bizarre <laughs> yeah it is and up to this point like each one of the issues sort of ended with a a note by wolfman describing kind of what the book was sort of be kind of like a lot of what we talked about in the previous episode kind of going over how he saw these characters how the structure of the story was supposed to be uh, at the end of issue three there's actually some sketches by like early character sketches for the four main heroes um mm. 
some good some good content in the back of those issues. If so, they ever release a collection, that could be good filler at yeah, the back. Yeah. No, it would be great. So yeah, we're your four issues into the story arc. The the first story arc ends up being seven and a half issues, so we're a little bit more than halfway over. Well, if you count the uh, preview too. So yeah, we're a little bit more than halfway. Things are picking up. We pick these apart. There are things that you know that, that might not hold up to scrutiny um, when you're doing them in a podcast. But overall, uh, I really like the story. I like where it's going. I like that it's not quite like anything else I have or had ever read before. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I do too. And interesting to know it's a dc comic but there's just there is absolutely zero connection to anything else in the dc universe at this point yeah yeah no yeah and and marv wolfen sort of said that like i I mean this is slightly pre-crisis but he kind of pictured this to be on its own world like its own separate thing and i think he might allude maybe in one of the letters columns later on he might sort of allude that if there was ever to be some kind of connection to the greater dc universe it might be an appearance by the phantom stranger or Madame Xanadu or something like that. But they would never see Superman or Green Lantern in this book. Um, Plastic Man. Yeah. Now, eventually, like post-crisis, we would see that the story does sort of get folded in because we see the Winter's Gate Mansion and Baron Winter's guest appear in Swamp Thing uh, during that that seance scene. But... uh, yeah, it's it's different. It's an unusual story, but I really like it. I like some of the more sophisticated and less classic-y comic book tricks that Wolfman is trying to employ. I, I love Gene Colan's art. The coloring sometimes fails when we get to the, the sort of monstrous or, or spectral apparition scenes, but I like what they're trying to do. Um, yeah, it's 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 nice and ambitious, and it probably falls yeah. short a little bit in execution. Yeah. I, yeah. I usually don't want older comics to be recolored or redone, but I think this book might benefit from that. Like if this was given like a digital treatment, or if they released like a new collection, if it had been recolored, um, they mm. might be able to do some really cool things with with some of those scenes. It's uh, well reminds me a little bit of uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths. How I really wanted to see that in a, a recolored edition in some instances, just because he couldn't. It was so muddy. Yeah, yeah. But um, I, I like the widening scope and the fact that it's you know going to London and we're we're off to the Soviet Union next. You know, it just makes it feel more epic. Right, right. Especially because these two guys, like who are we ta- we're talking about a a kind of failing journalist and a parapsychologist who are going who are going over the iron curtain to rescue a woman from the KGB. It's like like Jack actually had that line I think in issue 3. He's like I'm not uh, I'm not with the FBI. Like I'm not the guy for this. Yeah, and that trip and that globe trotting immediately makes me think what sort of travel allowance are they getting for this, you know? <laughs> I don't think Jack has enough money for a hotel room on him. And I don't think the Baron would pay for this. He doesn't. No, seem, no doesn't he does seem, seem like a, re- yeah, a total tart ass. He doesn't seem like the type who would like comp them for gas money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so turn in your receipts to Merlin at the end of your trip. <laughs> Maybe he's hoping they just all die like everyone does on the other his <laughs> missions. Exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, all right. Uh, okay, well, uh, I think that's it for Night Force issues one through four, folks. We're going to take another quick break, but when we come back, we'll have your listener feedback from back on episode four when we talked about the preview. Don't go away. Uh-huh. 
the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, in which four guys talk about romance comics and about romances in comics with Siskoid. We're all uh, French Canadians here. Marty! In horror comics, there's often like this little, you know, <laughs> romance tinge, I guess. Okay. Bass! <laughs> we oh, just yeah. turned on him! <laughs> and yours truly, Fern. I'm very aroused. Featuring the overproduced wonder that is Romance Comics Theater every episode. Dan, I knew it couldn't last from the first day you eyeballed me when I reported to work. It wouldn't matter if I washed in laundry soap and came to work in a burlap sack. I'd turn you on. And you have the same effect on me. I... I do? The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, available at lonelyheartspodcast.wordpress.com and on iTunes. We've had a comic book romance. Back on episode four, we discussed the Night Force insert preview from New Teen Titans 21. We got some great comments on the Fire and Water website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. Going through those comments, and I tend to cherry pick bits from the comments to save time. The first comment came from Chuck Coletta. He said, Thanks for highlighting the great Gene Colan. Back in 2005, he sat for a wonderful interview on the Comic Geek Speak podcast. He comes across as both a master illustrator and humble working artist. And then Chuck provided a link to the interview that you can check out on his comment. So, and I wish I could have met Gene Colan. I never went to a con that he was at, or I just didn't know about it at the time. But uh, yeah, he is one of my favorites. And I haven't listened to that, the podcast that Chuck mentioned, but I, when I get the chance, I will definitely try to. Uh, Siskoid from Give Me That Star Trek, Ohatmu or Not, and other shows here on the Fire and Water Network said, I've gotten a handful of issues of Night Force over the years in flea markets and bargain bins, and was more interested in the premise than I was in Tomb of Dracula, its obvious cousin. But I wouldn't get to read full Night Force stories until they revised the book in the 90s, with Tom Mandrake on art, Natch. It's kind of a supernatural suicide squad, and I think it would work well as a television series these days. Yeah, I feel so dumb because we talked about how Tom Mandrake's art looks like Gene Collins and, you know, neither of us remembered that he'd worked on Night Force in uh, subsequent volumes. Yeah, yeah. No. And it's, I think Mandrake didn't do the Night Force series from the 90s. I think that had like a rotating or different artist. But Mandrake did do the 2012 Night Force series. Yeah. But no, you're right. Yeah, they, it seems like an obvious extension because their styles are so similar. Uh, Rob Kelly from Treasury Cast, Who's Who, and several other shows on the Fire and Water Network said, I never knew the series was supposed to be a Challengers of the Unknown update. That's odd. I'm glad it didn't work out that way and Night Force became its own thing. I guess since there are or have been so many other Monster Hunter shows, Night Force isn't brought up as great material for a TV series, but I always liked the book and concept. Plus, horror plus Gene Colan equals win. And Rob signed off his message with, off to punch a koala. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I, I think that's all you. <laughs> I think so. Uh, Rob and I dance around each other, and we, we have talked about doing a podcast together, but I think we're slightly adversarial. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad. Uh, Dr. Ainge from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, Finally, Night Force. I read this preview in the Titans and was intrigued enough to put it on my monthly list. This was the summer of the monthlies for me, the year I decided to get some books every month instead of spinning the rack and looking for the best cover. Trust me, for a preteen Ange, Weird Orgies was just one of the many draws for this book. 
As I have said before, the ending of this opening arc has a very human moment, which was very eerie and thought-provoking for me as a kid. I'll comment on it when we get there. So I love this book, specifically the first arc. I thought it was strange, evil being used as a power source, and none of the characters are very likable. But together, it just seemed to gel. Colin is the perfect choice for this sort of story. The bizarre, ethereal demons which eventually attack everything was fantastic, so count me on board. Yeah, uh, Ange has been a, a bigger fan of Night Force for longer than I have. So, <laughs> If schedules will allow, I'll try and get you both on one of the future episodes, because I'd love to hear his thoughts, too. Oh, I can't work with him. I'm sorry. <laughs> Not anymore. Some horrible thing happened on Waiting for Doom one time. <laughs> Uh, Scott X, who you should have heard on the previous episode of this show talking about the Crimson Claw, Scott said, Although I do recall reading the Night Force preview, not much of it really stuck with me at the time. Like Paul, I think I was just more interested in getting on with New Teen Titans story. I remember being reintroduced to Night Force through the Baron Winters entry in Who's Who and then the Swamp Thing issues you guys mentioned. But alas, I never read anything more than some random Night Force issues after that. I will be taking another look at this series, though. I recently reread the preview, and then in listening to your podcast, I have a little more interest in checking out the concept than I did in the past. As others have mentioned, the idea seems to sort of made for a TV series, but the window is probably closed closed for it now. There are so many other similar types of shows out there already. Uh, Scott goes on to say, I really like Gene Colan's art with these types of stories. His use of shadow, for me at least, sets a mood that works well with the tone of the story that really draws me in. Strangely, I think his artwork and this type of story paired together work better for me with the old printing style and paper than it would with the newer printing techniques. When rereading the preview, I like the aged feel I got with a now 30-year-old book. So that's sort of different than what I was saying with maybe like liking a new reprinted version with a new coloring style. But, mm. yeah. uh, Scott finally says, And to the burning question of this episode, what term to use for Baron Winter's facial hair? I had facial hair like that at one time, and I just called it a chin beard. I typically don't wear a cloak, so I don't think mine had the same air of sophistication as his. Anyway, in the interest of curiosity, I looked it up on the internet to see what I could find. Wow, I never knew all of the differentiation between the names of facial hair. I guess maybe Winters would be classified as a petite goatee. Now I wish I would have never looked it up. <laughs> we should do a beard cast or something just to <laughs> really cover this topic. Ah, uh, yeah, maybe an episode of Fire and Water Presents. We'll just have a special, <laughs> the All Beards episode. <laughs> Chris Franklin from Supermates Podcast and Batman Nightcast said, Night Force is the kind of book I would like now, but as a kid I stayed away from. No guys in tights. Having become a big fan of Tomb of Dracula in the last decade or so, I'm interested in following along with you and Paul on the series. And if I see any issues in the cheap bins, well, I think I may have to add them to my collection. Uh, he says, I'm glad you picked up on all the Dark Shadows connections. Sounds like you know your Collinwood, Mr. Daly. We should do a Dark Shadows podcast. There's only like 10 million episodes to watch or something. Everything can be a podcast. That's the beauty of everything. <laughs> uh, and I have so much free time to dedicate to it now. You do, you do. And it's going to get easier too. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, our friend Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, When it was announced, I couldn't believe DC had managed to reunite the classic Tomb of Dracula team on a new book in the same ballpark. When it came out, I was delighted. It has some of that Tomb of Dracula tone without being a copy of Former Glories. It's such a shame the book didn't get longer to find its market. Still, DC wouldn't have pulled the plug until eight issues or whatever had appeared. And if the sales weren't showing a decent upswing, well, you can't blame DC for redeploying two of their top talents elsewhere. Yeah, it's still 10 issues more than Marvel Comics give things now. <laughs> and that's even when they're selling. They just cancel it and renumber it. 
Uh, Night Force preceded Ostrander and Yale's Suicide Squad, which used the Mission Impossible idea to greater commercial success. Surely DC could sell Night Force as a TV series by pitching it as Suicide Squad with chills. On the topic of the music for this podcast, which is all composed by my brother, Martin said, Neil is a talented guy. I bet we hear his great music on the big screen one day. Uh, my brother actually did recently win a songwriting contest, and uh, I will give uh, more information on that at some point in the future. But, oh, well done. Yeah, congratulations to him. Bradley Null said, Night Force is one of those things I have been told I would like so often I stubbornly refuse to read it. I'm a fan of Sandman and the New Teen Titans and have been told repeatedly ad nauseum by everyone that this series is perfect for someone with those interests. I've always liked this preview and I love the concept of Baron Winter and the house that seems adrift in time. However, when it came out I was trying to prove to my comics buying best friend Z that I wasn't into the weird stuff, so I skipped it. I not long after that accepted that I actually really like the weird stuff and once I accepted that, everyone has suggested I read this series. The problem is, every time someone suggests it, it makes me want to read it less. Maybe this show will cure me of that stubborn streak? What do you think, Paul? Um, I'll try some reverse psychology. Bradley, the series is not for you. I don't think you're going to like it. I don't think you should read it. I don't think you can even listen to this podcast. Just stay away, mate. It's not for you. Jimmy McGlinchey said, My only experience with Night Force is the 2012 series with Wolfman and Mandrake, which was an interesting read, so I am looking forward to hearing the earlier exploits of the Night Force team. All right. It's an interesting read code for not good. <laughs> That's how I've always taken it. Yeah. Doug Zavisha from the Doom Patrol blog, My Greatest Adventure 80, friend of Waiting for Doom. I've never Night Forced, not even a little, but that's not stopping me from listening to you all talk about it. Great episode, gents, from two of my favorite podcasting voices. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Abel Mavada said, Finally, the episode I've been waiting for is here. As much as I've enjoyed all of the other segments of your show, I'm super excited about reading Night Force number one and then listening to the podcast after. What's that? Night Force starts with a preview with jousting knights in a comic book I don't own? Son of a bitch. Well, thanks for putting up some of the images from the preview. I only had a couple of Night Force comics growing up and then never saw it on the spinner rack again. But what little I read, along with the Night Force entry in Who's Who, has stayed with me ever since. Over 30 years. Now that's a frightening thought. Looking at the preview and hearing you guys discuss it as sort of like a supernatural Mission Impossible has just made me more excited to read the series and made me want to seek out some other Wolfman and Cullen work. Great show, gentlemen. Good to hear. That's, I mean, one of one of the joys of doing the podcast is getting other people in, interested and involved in the things that we are interested and involved in. So. Yeah, and uh, it's fun to make a completionist realize he hasn't got something. <laughs> that's always, that's a pain that never goes away. <laughs> All right, and our final comment for this one, Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine Network and DC Bloodlines podcast. I'm sure he's going to be really positive about this. Can you read it at Frank's feed? <laughs> I will play it back that fast. But <laughs> Frank says, here's the deal. I read Tomb of Dracula, which was running on toxic fumes by its end in the 70s, which explains the Messiah Child and battles with the Silver Surfer and stuff. Whenever I try to read Night Force, it comes across as reheated Tomb of Dracula, and I do not want that. I tried this preview because it was in the Titans comic, and I read a couple others as loners or out of the cheap bins. I don't like Baron Winters, his cat, his house, or any of the people he surrounds himself with. I don't like Marv Wolfman's scripts, and even Gene Colan's art bores me in this tired context. I'm carrying all of the features on the Podcasting Hour anthology for now, but this is the one on the thinnest ice through no fault of the hosts. I'm going to try, but no promises. Ah, oh, Frank, Frank, for goodness sake, just form an opinion for once on something. Yeah. 
Oh, so wishy-washy. <laughs> Non-committal Frank. That's him all over. <laughs> oh, this was okay. That's something Frank says all the time. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of ambivalent to this. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, well, in typical fashion, you know, we just set that up by saying we love it when we can get another listener excited about it, and Frank comes and dashes all of that. But um, hopefully, since we're just going to cover this series in only a few more episodes, he might stick around for the long run if we kind of speed through it. <laughs> Um, and that is, folks, for you listening, th- that is kind of the plan to do three more episodes of Night Force for this podcast. Uh, the next one will cover issues five, six, seven, and the first half of issue eight, because that wraps up the first story arc. Then we're going to have another one that covers the second half of issue eight, as well as nine, ten, or just nine, ten, and eleven, or nine and ten, I think. That's a, yeah, that's a Slow short... down, slow down. I'm trying to write this down. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, the second half of issue 8 and issues 9 and 10. That's another arc. Pages then, 3 and 4 of issue 10. Then we go to page <laughs> 12 of issue 14. And then we go back to issue 8. And then okay. we're going to reread issue 1 before we cover issues 11 through 14, the final story. <laughs> and then we'll do it as a musical. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, that is all for this one. Paul, thank you very much for being my guest again on Midnight the Podcasting Hour, and thanks for talking Night Force with me. Where else, besides your occasional appearances on this show, can people find you? Uh, I, I pop up from time to time in places. Uh, I was recently on the Wild Dog podcast. Um, I was pretty proud of that one. I really derailed um, Jay Jones's show for uh, episode four. I quite enjoyed that. Um, but my my regular hang is Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast. Um, it made a lot more sense when there was no Doom Patrol comic, um, and now there's a Doom Patrol comic, so we have to wait between issues instead of waiting for the series to come back from the mist. But the Doom Patrol schedule is making that quite fun and interesting because we like to have weeks off and you never know when one of those new episodes is going to uh, new issues is going to pop up little buggers um, I know that's, yeah, the, that's and, the perfect thing about it though is like it seemed like okay you're not going to have to wait anymore there's a new book but it's almost like you know Gerard Way is doing it just for you he keeps making you wait a little bit longer by delaying the book so it's you never know when it's going to come out yeah yeah uh, it's self-fulfilling um, <laughs> and we do things like tell people we're going to have a week off and then we don't so <laughs> <laughs> it's all random. Anything could happen. Um, I'm on Twitter at reading underscore Hicks, and um, you can find me at desk F70P on level two <laughs> at my work. So <laughs> pop on by. That's where we'll look for you. <laughs> Back on March 16th, the website Bleeding Cool posted a list of upcoming omnibus, absolute, deluxe, and complete collections. This would be an awesome list if you were just a fan of Jack Kirby's Fourth World, Supergirl, Golden Age Green Arrow, and or Superman. But the list also includes four collections relevant to Midnight the Podcasting Hour as they pertain to horror comics. First up is the one we've just been talking about, Night Force by Marv Wolfman, The Complete Collection. It's scheduled for release on October 31st. Halloween, how about it? For $39.99, you get the complete series that Paul and I are covering, Night Force issues 1 through 14, and the preview from New Teen Titans 21. 
Next up, and you can ask Doug Zavisha how excited he is for this, Dead Man by Kelly Jones, The Complete Collection. This book collects Dead Man Love After Death and Dead Man Exorcism by Mike Barron and Kelly Jones. It's $24.99 and due to come out September 5th. Now, on to a couple of big omnibus editions. First, Swamp Thing, the Bronze Age omnibus. This was originally solicited on Amazon.com last year, but I guess it didn't get enough pre-orders because it was taken down. But now it's back with a vengeance. Originally, this omnibus was only going to collect the 24 issues of the first Swamp Thing series, plus his debut in House of Secrets issue 92 and his team-ups with Batman in The Brave and the Bold. Now, it's not just collecting those stories, but also his appearances in Challengers of the Unknown 83 through 87, DC Comics Presents issue 8, and best of all, Saga of the Swamp Thing issues 1 through 18. That means every appearance by Swamp Thing prior to Alan Moore's debut on the character. This is a phenomenal collection, and it's going to cost $100, yeesh, but you'll be able to pre-order and probably get it for like half of that price. It is scheduled for release on September 26th, which is very close to my birthday, so... Hey, I know what I'm getting. But that's not even it, because DC is also publishing DC Horror House of Secrets, a hardcover omnibus collecting... Actually, I don't know what exactly it's collecting, other than Swamp Thing's first appearance, but it's listed at 700 pages, so expect a ton of short stories, a lot of which may end up getting covered on this podcast. The thing about these advanced solicitations for DC collections is that there is no guarantee they will actually get published. DC needs to know that there is interest in these books. So as soon as you get the chance to pre-order, I hope you do. Trust me, there is no lack of quality in these books. Okay, one final note on a separate topic. A short time ago, I was contacted by a guy named James Von Bolt, who is a sound designer and composer who is working on a couple of projects relevant to this show. First, James's band, The Night Stalker, named after the show, which is awesome in and of itself, but the band actually recorded a cover version of the theme to the Secret Origins podcast that my brother wrote. They released their cover version on Bandcamp. You can download it for free, and I will post a link to the song and to James's main website on the show notes for this episode. He also told me that his band wrote a song inspired by the Spectre and that he's working on a Spectre blog for some time in the near future. Both of those sound really, really cool to me, and as soon as he gives me more details, I will be promoting the hell out of him on this podcast. Good timing. That was all I had to say. member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight the Podcasting Hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Midnight the Podcasting Hour is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight.